Please be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice. The opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so. Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services. Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode. We really appreciate you joining us. This podcast really shows us how we can all learn, live, and thrive off of each other. By sharing our knowledge through our conversations, we will impart some knowledge whilst learning ourselves how to progress even further. Here is your host. Thank you so much for tuning into the Life Upgrade podcast. Um, we have a special guest today. It's with me. He'll be telling us about addiction, the process, and recovery. His name is Kelvin Wilson, and I'm so, so happy because he's, he's going to be teaching us a lot. He's going to be telling us a lot. And if you know anyone who is um, suffering from addiction, any addiction of any sort, maybe alcoholism or drug abuse, this um, podcast episode will really help the person. So I will turn it over to Kelvin Wilson. Just say hi to everyone who will be listening hello uh listeners and fulfillment i uh, thank you for this opportunity to share my strength hopes and experiences um i would like to start off by saying that in america uh, the drug and alcohol and nicotine epidemic is ongoing but a person can recover if he wants to. That's that's the key word, if he wants to. But starting off uh, prior to my addiction, I grew up in a family uh, dominated by women. Uh, my biological father was not around. I didn't know him, and, but I was very, very close to my grandparents. So I had a grandfather and a grandmother, but my grandmother passed very, very early in 1963. And so I hung around my grandfather and I went to elementary school. And, you know, you come home and you, you, you watch people and you listen to conversations, grown up conversations, you do your homework. But I always found, uh, I discovered very early as a kid that I liked the outdoors and I had a dog and my dog was like my bodyguard. So everywhere I went, he followed me. But I remember as I reflect back, I used to always pick up stones off the ground and I would throw them to see how far I could throw a rock. But little did I know that that rock that I threw a lot turn into a baseball and baseball in america is the greatest pastime sport but i didn't know that i would be playing baseball so as i continue to grow as a toddler I, you know my grandfather built a house with a uh, fifth grade education and in the garage I noticed brand new baseball bats. 
brand new baseballs and brand new uniforms, but I didn't know why they were there. And then all of a sudden, I found out very quickly that my grandfather was a baseball manager of a Negro League Sandline baseball team. So the 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 routine for me growing up was during the week you go to school, you do your homework, and on the weekends, you know, I'm I'm outside playing. But on Sundays, you go to church. And you go to the baseball park. And I went to the baseball park to watch my grandfather's team. And all of a sudden, one Sunday, my uncle who played for my grandfather, played for his father, which is my grandfather. He says, hey, that's your uh, father. That's your father over there. Go over there and speak to him. Well, my father... If you can visualize this, my father was on the other team. So by me being a bad boy, a bad boy is a individual who collects the bats after a hitter gets a hit. So my job every Sunday was to retrieve the bats and put them back in place for the next hitter for my grandfather's team. So I took a break. And I went over to the opposing team and my father knew me, but I didn't know him. So as I was approaching, getting closer and closer to his dugout, they made a way for me to sit down in between him and another player. And so that was the that was the introduction of my biological father. So we spoke briefly and then I had to get back to work. So as I got older, you know, I really didn't, I wasn't curious. I was curious as to why my mother and father were not together. But then it didn't dawn on me till years later. So my mother met a man and he was the police chief. And I want to say this again. He was the police chief of the town where I was born and raised. So the next thing my sister and I, she's older, the next thing I knew was my mother said, Kevin and Tanya, pack your bags. So you do what your mother say. You know, it says, honor your mother and father for your days shall be long on earth. So we honored that. And the next thing you know, we were moving with a stranger. We really didn't know this person. And I'm still an outside kid. And I fell in love with, with sports, basketball, baseball, football. So whatever season it was, I was playing that sport. And I wasn't a real studious-minded person, but I made the grade uh, in order to be, be eligible to play sports. And sports was my outlet. So all of a sudden, one day, as a juvenile, I can't remember if I was 12 or 11, but I wasn't a teenager yet. My mother asked my stepfather to go to a cabaret. A cabaret is like a dancing hall where, you know, you, you, you dance, you dance all night. And he didn't want to go. But the house that we're in now 
at this current time it's it's a it, it's it was structured where my bedroom was right across from my and I could see if 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 my door was wide open I could see right into my parents bedroom well my mother called her girlfriend and she wanted somebody to go with her dancing so she took her girlfriend my stepfather stayed behind because he had a he had a plan and as i'm counting pennies on my bed my door is, is halfway open instead of my stepfather going to the left headed to the kitchen he went into my sister's bedroom and i didn't know why until i heard my sister say what are you doing get off of me so if you can imagine a step parent in a stepdaughter's room trying to have sex with her that's exactly what he had in mind but by the grace of god giving me all the power that i had in my body i always kept a baseball bat around i took the baseball bat i charged into my sister's room and i knocked him out i knocked him completely out and he was a tall wow. person six foot five wow. so my sister and i we escaped but i can't i cannot tell you how we made it from the house that we lived in back to the house that we left which was my grandfather's house so when we wow. get to my grandfather's house my aunt opened the door and they were they were surprised like what are you doing here and i was the spokes i was the spokesperson because my sister was nervous so we sat we sat in the living room on the furniture that we were familiar with and i began to tell three aunts what went on and before i could conclude my story my grandfather was walking down the hall of his house that he built wanting to know who who is in the living room so one of my aunts said daddy is kevin and tanya they're here everything is okay well my aunt lied everything was not okay they just didn't want my grandfather to know what was going on so my grandfather turned around and went back to bed so we're we're on the couch we're we're sitting on the living room couch my sister is shaking and i'm telling my aunt what went on well a few minutes later the doorbell rang and it was my mother and the police so they entered the house and my aunt was telling the police everything is okay we won't do a report at this time we will take care of it well she told another lie everything was not okay and believe it or not nothing was done about it so just picture a young boy and a young girl they have to return home with their mother who 
marry a child molester. So now when we get back to the house, our mother never interrogated us. She never asked us no questions. But when we got back there, the stepfather was not there. He had left for the weekend. And I can see why, because he probably didn't know what my family was going to do or what they should have done. But anyway, when he returns from South Carolina, I heard my mother question him by saying, did you do it? And he is a police chief and a deacon in the church. And he told my mother, you know, I wouldn't do something like that. And our mother believed him and nothing else took place. So for me, my choice was, I am not gonna live under the same roof with, uh, 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 with a child molester who attempted to take advantage of my sister, there's no way I can do this. There's no way. And I'm really mentally messed up in the mind that our mother never confronted us about what happened or what do you think we should do next? There was no conversation about that at all. So for all that time, I became rebellious. So growing up in a family that drinks alcohol i didn't have to go to the liquor store to buy alcohol alcohol was already in the basement so what i did i said well this is going to be my solution and one day during the holidays you know thanksgiving everybody everybody was downstairs drinking all, all of the older relatives and I told my sister hey I want you to stand in the hallway I'm gonna I'm gonna take a sip of this wine and let me know as soon as somebody come up the steps because I didn't want to get caught drinking you know alcohol at uh, I mean wine at the age of I, I might have been 10 or 11 so anyway I took a sip of grape concord manischewe wine and it felt good with my taste buds i think i took two sips but i said this is the answer but i continued to be a student athlete and i was pretty good and, and you know god blessed me with the natural athletic ability and now i'm in the I was highly recruited by one of the uh, one of the most popular basketball programs in uh, the Washington D.C. area, Dematha High School for basketball. But my passion was baseball, and I'm in the eighth grade, and so I graduate and go into the ninth grade. Well, I didn't go to the school that highly recruited me, and that's one of my regrets. So I entered public school. And so the public school was right across the street in, in the same neighborhood where this incident took place. So I quickly became attached 
with the wrong crowd. And when I say the wrong crowd, you know, I, I hung around instead of being a leader, because I was a leader uh, from the fifth grade to the eighth grade. Everybody wanted to be on my team. Uh, but when I got to the ninth grade, I became a follower. So I wanted to fit in socially. Okay, so whatever these guys were doing, I did it. No one stuck a gun to my head. I chose to do that. But I thought that was the way that I could get rid of what's going on at home. And so I became a drinker. I was, uh, I started smoking marijuana. But I never considered myself an addict or alcoholic because I kept going. Okay, so I, I, I went to three three different high schools. Um, they even sent me away uh, in my 10th grade year down to North Carolina, but I came back and I went to another public school in the 11th grade year. And I really can't tell you fulfillment how I made it from the 11th grade to the 12th grade. I can't tell you, but when I tr transferred because I was faced with 15 years of prison uh, at the age of 16. And a friend of mine told me, you need to get out of this school and let's go to a school in Washington, D.C. because my father is the athletic director and you would look good in a green and gold uniform. He was referring to a baseball uniform. So while I'm facing 15 years of prison, I'm drinking, I'm drugging, trying to escape the reality at home. I transferred, used my father's, my biological father's address in D.C. and transferred to a Washington, D.C. high school my senior year, which is my 12th grade year. And so it worked out for me very, very well. And I improved academically. I improved athletically. Uh, we were runner-up champs in baseball. I uh, was the leading uh, leadoff hitter. I I pitched with both hands. Um, I was I was um, the leading base stealer in the conference and on my team. So I was doing real good, but I was still drinking and drugging, not thinking that I was an addict or alcoholic at that time. And so time went on and I got a college scholarship for baseball out in California, but I didn't have uh, the room, the room and board expenses. They were going to pay for the books and the scholarship, but I had to find room and board, but I didn't know anybody in California. So I went to school in North Carolina. Now, I'm in North Carolina. I'm still drinking and drugging. And when I come home for Christmas, I don't see no family members but one time. Because now my disease of addiction has increased. It went from wine, beer, marijuana to speed. It was a little tablet. It's, it's called a preluded. It's a speed, it's a it's a speed tablet for women to lose weight. Well, you can also get high off of it. It keeps you talking a lot. It keeps you up. Well, I fell in love with that. Wow. And so now, 
Now my addiction was increasing. But at this time, I still don't consider myself an addict or alcoholic. Okay, I don't. I'm just a person that used drugs. Okay, I graduated. Um, I, I, I did well in my last year in high school. Now I'm in college, and I'm, yeah. I'm doing pretty good. But I found out in college that I could never become eligible to play sports because of grades. And for some reason, I ended up going to summer school time and time again. But fulfillment, I refused to give up. And then all of a sudden, when nice. I went out, when I went out for the team in my sophomore year, after we were uh, junior college champions in Florida, we played against all Christian junior colleges and we won the ninth annual christian junior college title but at the same time we played against pro baseball teams not the major leagues it's four different categories in pro baseball you you can get drafted and play in the rookie league the single a double a triple-A, and then you make it to the majors. Well, we played against the rookie A uh, guys, and the New York Yankees, the Cincinnati Reds, and the Montreal Expos, and we did pretty good. But when yeah. we get back, when we get back to the campus after winning the championship, our coach called me at the first baseman and the outfielder to his office. And he says, I want to let you guys know that there are pro teams that are interested in you guys. So keep up the good work. And so you never know who's watching you. But as time go on, when I come back for my sophomore year to graduate from a two-year college, we have what is called fall baseball. Even though baseball is played during the months of March to June, we also have fall baseball, which starts right when we get back to school in August, and it will stop right around October because it gets cold in October. So the coach wanted me to show the team it was a drill. He wanted me to show the team how to run from home plate to second base and then slide. Well, I pretend that I got a hit. I ran down the first baseline and I took off to second and I did a hook slide with my left leg into second base and I didn't get up. Nice. Something, wow. popped, something popped in my left knee. And I screamed. It was excruciating pain. I couldn't move. And so oh. they had to call the ambulance to pick me up, oh. to take me to the hospital. When I got to the hospital, the doctor told me, you will never play baseball again unless we shoot cortisone in your knee or you do leg lifts religiously. And I couldn't believe it that my baseball career was abbreviated. This is something 
that was in my blood. I didn't play, play since the fifth grade and I was good at it. And now it's all over. So when I got that report from the doctor, I began to drink and drug more and I became depressed. Now I didn't want to leave. I didn't want to leave school without getting that college degree. So now I tell myself, what do I do now? Go back home and go to the streets or stay here and find a way to get my degree and then transfer to another school and get that second degree and then go home. Well, eventually that's what happened. I got my degree and wow. my two, I, I earned my two-year degree and then I transferred to a to an undergraduate institution in the state of North Carolina. And I didn't know what I wanted to major in. But the advisor helped me. And so I became I became a English journalism major. And I was the I am the first black male graduate from Elon University in the English journalism curriculum in 1981. Wow, interesting. Nobody can take that away from me, but even even in me earning that historical status, I was drinking and drugging the whole time, but I still didn't consider myself an addict or alcoholic. So I graduate and I get a job my first job in journalism was with the Washington Star, which was a prominent evening newspaper in the Washington, D.C. area. Everybody knows about the Washington Post, which still exists. But the Washington Star was an evening publication. And so I was hired as a high school sports writer. But all of a sudden, out of nowhere, when President Ronald Reagan was elected president, he abolished the newspaper. And so I couldn't start my first job as a journalist. So I went into another area, which was teaching. So starting out in my employment career, I drank and drug. And then I got a very, very good job in the postal service. You know, the postal service is a company that delivers a piece of mail to every house, every apartment in the United States of America. And that's where I got the job. And all of a sudden fulfillment, all of a sudden, I was introduced to cocaine. So as you see, I am progressing as a drug user. So now, instead of using the speed, instead of using the speed, I'm using cocaine. And then I was introduced to heroin. So now my main focus is on nothing but heroin and cocaine. I have left marijuana alone. I have left beer alone. I've left the wine behind. My total focus was on cocaine and heroin. That's it. And so as as time went on, I graduated from college. I got two degrees. 
I'm I'm working legally, but I'm still using, but I still don't consider myself an addict or an alcoholic until one day my supervisor said, uh, Kevin, uh, you you know you're setting a pattern here. You're you're not showing up for work on uh, 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 Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and you're off Monday and Tuesday. Well, I looked him in the eye and said, I don't have a problem. But yet, that was the pattern that I was setting for myself. And I was in denial. And then all of a sudden, I decided to get some help. But I really wow. didn't want I really didn't want the help. I just wanted to go to treatment to just rest and come back out and use alcohol and, and use drugs the two drugs of my choices. I just want to come back out and use them all over again, but a different way. So that's how my disease of addiction had control of me. So in 1986, I was in my first treatment center for the wrong reason. 1987, I was in another treatment center for the wrong reason. 1988, I was in another treatment center for the wrong reason. 1989, was when I surrendered to God, when a police disrupted our party in the woods. I'll say it again. A police that stood six foot eight. That's how tall he was. He was six foot eight. We were in the woods, like a wood area, getting high. And I had just got finished getting high and the police interrupted our party and he shot two bullets in the air. And he says, don't nobody, no, he says, halt, don't nobody move. Well, when he said that, my mind said, go. And I started running. Now, only by the grace of God, I didn't get shot in the back. So as I'm running to save myself from not going to jail that day, I'm running for my life. But I also know I just got finished using cocaine and heroin and, and that's not good. So as I'm running for my life, not to get caught, I don't know where I'm going. I'm just running. I'm just running, man. I'm just running. And as I'm running, I crossed this street and I fell. I fell right in front of two very, very attractive women that were wiping off a car. And when I fell in front of them, one of them told me, get up, honey. Here they come. What she, uh, what, 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 what they were referring to that I fell on a one-way street. And the police car was coming up the one-way street. And I looked at both of them. I got up and I was tired, but I refused to go to jail. And so what I did very quickly, the cop car was even with me. Just, just picture me running on the sidewalk in a neighborhood and a cop car is driving on that street right beside me. 
And it was a woman. And she says, are you tired of running? And I looked at her. I said, no, I'm not tired of running. I'm never going to stop. And right after I said that, I made a quick right turn and hopped a fence into somebody's front yard. Now, I'm 32 years old. So I hopped the person's backyard. And the next thing, the next thing I see is three gigantic holes. And I think these holes were the foundations of brand new homes. So like a guy does in the army, he gets in the hole and he's prepared to fire. Well, I got in the hole fulfillment. I got in the hole, laid down on my back. And all I could say was, God, if you get me out of this, I won't look back. I kept saying it. But what God wanted me to hear was the conversation between the woman that owned the house, the yard that I ran through, and the cop. Because the cop knocked on her door. It was a woman that owned the house that I ran through her yard. And the cop asked the owner, hello, miss, I'm officer so-and-so. We don't know if the person we're trying to apprehend has a gun or not talking about me. But would you please go in your backyard to see if you see him? And the woman told the cop, okay, miss, I'll be right back. This woman who I have never seen, and she has never seen me. And she's looking downward because I'm in a, I'm in a hole. She's looking downward. I'm looking upward at her and she's looking downward at me. Whatever God put on her mind to say, I heard it very, very clear. And I was several yards away. That woman probably said to herself, this could be my son. This could be my husband. This could be my nephew. This could be my brother. When she ripped, when she returned to the front of her house and told the police something that wasn't true, all I can say that God showed mercy on me. She told the police, officer, there is nobody back there. I think he kept on running. And so that night, I had to wait until it, it, it got dark in order to come out the hole because I didn't want to get caught. So the police got in her car and she vanished. And when it came nighttime, I walked back through that same environment where the police came earlier that day. And somebody remembered me and said, hey, man, weren't you one of the guys that uh, got caught by Bigfoot? That was his nickname. That was the police's nickname because he had big feet, but he was six foot eight. And I looked at the brother. I said, brother, I don't know what you're talking about. Have a good day. And I kept on walking and I went back to my friend's house. I never, ever got down on my knees in front of a man. But when my buddy opened up the door and let me in his basement, 
I got down on my knees and he had never seen he had never seen me do this before. Before I got down on my knees, I told him, I said, man, this is it. I'm done. And I got down on my knees and I said a prayer to God that if you hear my humble cry and get me into a long term program, I won't look back. And God did it. He didn't do it right away. So I went through the, the, the process of getting into long-term treatment. And it was a program called the Salvation Army uh, Adult Rehabilitation Center for Men. And it was a work therapy program, a long-term program. So I, I, I am, I'm a testament that God answers prayers. And wow. I got and I got in. I was I was the youngest person in my dorm. We had dorms. It was like eight people, eight, nine, ten people in a dorm. And I was the youngest person at 32. Uh I stopped using April the seventh, nineteen eighty-nine, but I didn't get into the long term treatment this time until August of 1989 and I never looked back um, I, I did everything right because I wanted to change and I was still smoking cigarettes and that's very addictive and I, next thing I know I, I, I found a church I found a church home and I was talking to a minister and I told the minister where I was and the minister told me, well, since you got a chapel, because we had to go to church in the, in the treatment program, we were mandated to go to church. That wasn't a problem because I grew up going to church. So we had a chapel within our environment. So the minister said, every time you have a desire to smoke, go into prayer chapel and pray. He says, it won't be long before God deliver you from the urge, compulsion, and obsession to smoke. So I followed the minister. And then a year later in 1990, the urge, compulsion, and obsession to smoke nicotine was, was gone. And I just kept working the program. Now, even though I'm in the program, the job that I left, I had permission to go and save my life. But the supervisor that helped me the first time didn't want to help me after the first attempt. So they sent me a letter to my mother and she brought it to me. And it says that they didn't know where I was. So I was considered AWOL absent without leave a wall he has disappeared we don't know where he is but they didn't know that i went to the the head person that ran the entire post office in our area and i had a written document telling me that i could take as much time as i want to go and save my life and my job will be on hold 
until I get out. So I go through the treatment process. I got promotions within the treatment process. And then I meet a writer, a professional writer for the Washington Post that was just like me. And I met him at an AA meeting, that's Alcoholics Anonymous. And my counselor knew that I liked to write. So he coordinated this meeting for me to meet this professional journalist. And so this guy told me, he says, since you have a job at night while everybody is asleep, why don't you write about how you feel and interview some of those guys, interview some of those guys. Those guys are intelligent and they are. You know, when, when we stop using chemicals, destroying our inner, 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 inner selves, we are intelligent people. So he says, I dare you to write three to five pages a night. And he says, if you stay there for one year, just multiply 365 days times three or times five pages. You got a book. So I took his advice and that's what I did while I was in treatment. So when I left treatment, I had three chapters because we moved to three different places and I left and then I went to take care of my grandfather. Uh, um, I took care of him until he, he, he passed, which was June 20th, 1994. But I had fulfillment. I had a 17 year addiction. Now I admitted to myself that I was an addict in 1989. And that's when the police interrupted our party in the woods. Until that time, I really didn't consider myself an addict or alcoholic, but I was in denial. And so when I came out of that denial, being realistic with myself, because you got to be true to yourself, I wanted to change because there's nothing like your physical freedom. There's nothing like it, man. There's nothing like your physical freedom. Okay. And so God saw fit to not allow me to experience incarceration. He took me to the treatment route and I stayed there for 21 months and I left successfully, took care of my grandfather and that was it. That was, that was the last treatment center. That was the fifth attempt. But that fifth attempt, I wanted to change. Prior to that, I really didn't want to stop because I love the way drugs made me feel. It may sound insane to somebody that's never used drugs, but the feeling, the feeling is indescribable. But what I don't oh, like sense. about it, but what I don't like about it is how it makes you sick and how it makes you do things that you normally wouldn't do if you were in the right frame of mind. So I, I'm so thankful today that I got a divorce from alcohol, drugs, and nicotine.
I'm so thankful, man. So you know, you 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 ask me, who do I help? Well, I've helped. I've had a lot of platonic children in my life. I I I'm on dis I'm on disability right now. I'm 64 years old, but I'm kind of proud of my past employment history. I've been a I've been a youth consultant. I've been a juvenile counselor. I've been a charge of quarters in a halfway house with women that have done prison time, and now they're getting ready to go home. And my job was to provide them with the resources to help them to stay clean, to help them to stay out of prison, and to provide employment opportunities. Where one one story sticks out the most that I felt that it was a assignment from God given to me. The young lady was facing 60 years because they found drugs in her apartment that belonged to her boyfriend. So she came to me one day, one one night, and said, "Mr. Wilson, I'm getting ready. I'm I'm facing 60 years, and I'm I'm getting ready to go to court. Can you write me a letter?" I said, "I'm not your case manager. I'm the charge of quarters." I said I can't step out of bounds and do that. You need to find your case manager. Well, she could never find him because the case manager never came to work. So I said, I tell you what, I'll write what you have done on or what you do on my shift. How's that? She said okay. So I just wrote what she what she did on my my shift. She went to bed on time. She wasn't. She didn't cause no problems. She did her chores. She followed instructions. She came in on time, and that's what I wrote. Well, she invited me to her her court her court hearing. So I go, and I find myself in the courtroom by myself, and I'm saying, you know, to myself, where are the people? Well, the judge entered the courtroom. The court. The courtroom reporter entered the courtroom. Now here comes my client, and I mean, the, 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 my client's lawyer entered the courtroom, but I don't see her. So now, about five minutes go by. Now she comes in the courtroom and she sees me and she smiles, but I notice I'm the only one in the courtroom. So the judge called the prosecutor. And her lawyer to approach his desk, and what happened was the judge wanted to know who was that man back there, sitting back there. What is he doing here? And it was me. So Jones' lawyer said, "Well, that's Mr. Wilson from the halfway house." So the judge told the lawyer. To tell, to tell the bailiff, I have to leave because the hearing was sealed. In other words, it couldn't, it wasn't open to the public, so I had to leave. So when I got home, I didn't understand what a sealed case was, and I asked somebody, and they they educated me. But when I got home, the telephone rang, and it was my client's lawyer.
And this is what he said. He said, Mr. Wilson, I'm sorry that you had to leave the courtroom today. But man, you are awesome. I said, sir, what are you talking about? He said, that letter that you wrote on behalf of my client, it, it really was so impressive to the judge. You wouldn't believe the sentence that Joan Carson received. Well, I said, well, how much time did she get? Because I, I knew she was facing 60 years. That's six zero years. And the lawyer said, Mr. Wilson, because of your letter, the judge reduced her sentence from 60 years to three. And all I could say wow. was, wow. Man, all I could say was, you know what, sir? I give all the credit to God and to wow. Joan Carson, to Joan Carson, because she dictated to me and how I would write the report. So I commend God and I commend her, but I'm so happy that she got three years. And man, wow. I, almost cried, I almost cried, man. So I thought about that for a long time. And then one day I'm on a job at night getting ready to get off in the morning like 7 a.m and i go to my car to pull off on a one-way street and i roll the window down and as i roll the window down i'm at the stop sign getting ready to make a right turn and somebody says mr wilson real loud and it was her she had she was home from prison and I said, wow. oh, man, I can't believe this. So I get out of my car. I go over to her. She gives me a big hug. She said, Mr. Wilson, I can't thank you enough. You did it, man. You did it. I said, no, I didn't do it. I said, Jesus Christ did it. And you did it. And I said, I just wrote the report that your behavior dictated. I said, it's so wow. good to see you. What are you. What are you doing now? She says, well, I got my son back. I live in an apartment by myself. I got a job at the university in the cafeteria and I'm clean and I'm doing what you always told me to do. She says, I'm so happy to see you. And man, I felt so good, man. I really felt so good. So that was one success story. You know, I have success stories, you know, but um, I have more unsuccessful stories as opposed to successful stories. You know, in, 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 in one instance, I help a guy just by praying, just by praying. You know, his mother and father didn't know what to do. They called me. I went over and I told him, give me all of the heroin, put it in my hand. And he put it in my hand. I mean, he did it voluntarily. He put it in my hand. And I went to the bathroom. I put it in the toilet and i flushed the toilet and i went upstairs with him his mother and father formed a circle and i said a prayer now just for that day just for that day he didn't use no heroin okay just just for that day but eventually he went back to it and he died from uh he died from cancer he started smoking 
And so he died from cancer. But just for that day, just for that day, he didn't use. So, you, you, you know, and, and, and even at the female halfway house, I helped a young lady that never had a job in her life. She never had a job. Her job was stealing and getting high, stealing and getting high, stealing and getting high. That's all she knew for, for, for like 20, 28, 30 years. She didn't know what it was like to report to work and work at a legal job like a McDonald's or a Wendy's or working in retail. She didn't know anything about that. Her whole life centered around drugs and stealing. So one day I was trying, I was, I was working on getting my credentials to be a certified addiction counselor. And when you do that, you have to do a, a lot of volunteer work. So at that time, I was working at a treatment facility, outpatient facility. And so I brought home a poster that advertised the program where I was doing volunteer work at. So if anybody had a drug problem, they could sign up for this program. And so her name was Kathy. Kathy signed up. <clears throat> Now, I ended up getting fired from that job. And the reason why I got fired was because my boss was a lesbian. And yeah. she was and she was jealous. <clears throat> she was envious of me because I was really there to help those ladies to move forward. And one day when I wasn't there, she called 45 women one by one and asked them the same question. Has Mr. Wilson ever touched you? They all said no. Has Mr. Wilson ever asked you for your phone number? They all said no. Has Mr. Wilson ever said anything sexually towards you? They all said no. Thank God they all said no. And so that bothered her, okay? And then one day she made up a lie and we, we, we unfolded the truth to knock out the lie. But by me being on probation for six months, I was terminated the, the next to the last day that I would have made probation. But in doing all that, I reflect back and say, God sent me there for two reasons. And the two reasons were to help Joan Carson and to help Kathy. And I got two letters. Maybe one day I'll meet I'll meet you because I did if, if by God's permission I, I do want to explore Nigeria. I got two wow. I got two letters. One was from Joan and one was from Kathy. And Kathy wrote a three-page letter about there was nobody on staff but Mr. Wilson who truly cared about my addiction and he gave me help. And so I looked at it, you know, a couple, couple months ago. And so I just thank God for the journey. But I've helped people and I'm a part of, you know, fellowships. Um, I have testified in church and... Um, it's unfortunate that I have not had the opportunity to help someone in my 
biological family. And I've had five male cousins to die from a direct result of alcohol, drugs, and nicotine. And I refused mm -hmm. to die that way. And when I looked at my uncle who died from alcohol and cigarettes um, at the age of 46, I was determined not to die that way. So I had to separate. You know, sometimes when, when God say, uh, come out from among them and be separated, sometimes, yeah. you have, sometimes you have to do that in order for you to reach your personal and professional goals to have peace in your life and to be of sound of mind. So you got to love the ones that are, that are dear to you. Sometimes you got to love them from a distance. And that's what I do. So my biological father passed in 2017 and uh, my mother's still living, but she drinks. So I pray, I pray for her that if it's in God's will to deliver her from alcoholism, then it'll be his will. If not, I still love her. I still love her. And I forgave, I forgave her. I forgave my, uh, my, 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 my aunt's. Uh, when they should have taken care of a problem and they didn't. So I have learned how to forgive because, you know, God forgives me over and over, yeah. you know. And, and, and so, but I will sum it up by saying this fulfillment that I even came to the point that I forgave my stepfather. And when I was taking care of my, my grandfather, my stepfather would bring him breakfast. And that day that he brought him breakfast, he wanted to talk to me outside in his truck. And I didn't know why, but now I'm several years sober. I'm getting closer and closer to God. and. <clears throat> living living right and and helping myself helping my grandfather doing my earthly duty for him because he took care of me in the beginning and he introduced yeah. me my, my grandparents introduced me to prayer so i get in the truck i get on the passenger side and my stepfather says you know kevin i i i commend you on what you're doing for your grandfather and I looked at him, I said, thank you. He says, I want to, I want to tell you something. You know, I haven't always been a good person. And when he said that, I knew what he was talking about. But I wanted to wait until he finished so I could respond if I, or even if I needed to respond. So he says, at this point in time, I want you to forgive me. So I've been taught, God forgives. You have to forgive. If you're trying to get into the kingdom, you got to forgive, because God yeah. forgives. So, so I was taught that. So at that particular time, fulfillment, at that time, I looked him in the eye, young man to older man, and I said, I forgive you. And I could see the tears coming down his eyes, because he took off his glasses and got out his handkerchief and wiped his face. 
And I said, is this the end of the conversation? And he says, uh, well, yeah, but I'd like to ask you a question. I said, okay, what's the question? He said, why did you do what you did to me? And I said, well, I was sick. I had a drug habit. So when you're sick and you got a drug habit, you don't care who you take from. So <clears throat> I would like for you to forgive me. And he did. Now, nobody knew that. Nobody knew that in my entire family. Nobody knew about that encounter but him, myself, and God. And so I said, well, I got to get back inside to take care of my grandfather. So he says, okay. And I went back inside fulfillment and I continued on with my duties of taking care of my grandfather. Now I did tell my sister, I wrote a letter to my sister and told her what happened. And that was it. So I can say, I can say, that God is still working on me. I'm making spiritual progress. And I can say to anybody that I forgave a child molester. I forgave him. And I really did. I honestly did. And so he, you know, he he, he eventually passed. And uh, and that's that's it, man. So that's that's what happened, you know. Uh, I, I was uh, started out as a a a, 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 a student athlete with 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 uh, uh, endless potential that God gave me, and yeah. all of a sudden, when that domestic when that domestic situation took place, I didn't yeah. know how to handle it. I didn't know how to handle it, man. So I just said, okay, it's enough. It's enough alcohol down here for me to not think about it. But after all of that, all that I went through, I will tell anybody that drugs and alcohol and nicotine is not the solution. It's not the solution. You know, yeah. I didn't have nobody. See, I didn't have nobody in my family to say, what are you doing? Uh, uh, no, this is not the way because most of my family members were either into alcohol and drugs and cigarettes or just alcohol. So you can't go to somebody in the family if you're trying to get off of it, but you never know what's gonna happen down the road that's gonna allow you to experience a rude awakening or a spiritual awakening. And that cop, that cop fulfillment and not wanting to go to jail, not wanting to get shot. That was the turning point. And that's the title. That's the title of my book. Wow. All right. So you've been really, really inspiring. I really learned a lot from your story, starting from your early childhood and how it was difficult for you to cope with your stepfather who was a child molester. Um, one thing that really touched me in your story is when you talked about God and how God really showed up. We have a lot of people who are trying to deal with the addiction, drug use and alcoholism, but it's difficult for them to do that because they are trying to do it outside of God. They believe that they can get treatment 
and they don't need God to be involved. And your treatment center, you said the, it was mandatory for them, for everyone to go to church. And I really love the role that God played in bringing you back to the light and helping you to cure your addiction. Okay, the last question I have is um, um, just give a practical step for anyone who will be listening to this audio. Um, how, as if they are at any point um, in their addiction process or um, depending on how many years I've spent, practical step they should take if they have access to treatment or not, what you should think they should do? Well, you, you know, God works in mysterious ways. And I can say this, if a person really and genuinely wants to stop using drugs, alcohol, and nicotine, God is the source, but God has placed plenty avenues on earth for a person to explore. Number one is the church. Number two is treatment. And when you go through both, when you go through the treatment process and you're connected to the right church, you can't fail. You cannot fail. There's no way you can fail. But in order to even take a step forward, you got to look at yourself in the mirror and say, I want to change. You don't need to change. You have to want to change. And once you insert that want and you take that step forward, God will step in and direct your path because he did it for me. He did it for me. And right now, I know so many people that are not using. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible. I have a church home. I have a recovery home. It's a beautiful thing to go to a recovery convention where you see 100,000 ex-users in one convention center. It's also beautiful to testify in church of what God has done for you and follow his laws. It's important because he is the one that's allowing me to live each day, giving me a choice to change. So it starts with the individual. Are you, are you tired yet? Are you tired? Because the treatment route is very, very easy. Detox, treatment, recovery. And on, and on the side of that, on the side of that, you can hang out with the saints and, 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 and follow, follow that divine order of what is written in the, in, in that good book, which I call the Holy Scriptures. So if a person want to really change, they got to surrender, surrender from the destructive lifestyle that's not designed by God, that's designed by Satan. That's it. It's real simple. I don't struggle. I don't struggle in 
wanting or thinking about going backwards is no struggle for me. When you've had enough, you know that you've had enough. But it's three things that is going to happen that's guaranteed when you stay out there too long. It's guaranteed fulfillment. It's jails, institutions, or death. All right. Thank you so much. And we're talking about a book. Um, I think I've seen a little about the book. So I, I just want to tell us a little about the book or maybe the release dates, um, what you're trying to portray, like put out in the book and how the book will really help people that are dealing with addiction, alcoholism and drug use. Uh, yes, it, it's... it's um... Currently, I have a GoFundMe page. It's uh, www.gofundme.com slash saving lives through treatment. And the, the, the book campaign is for me to get the expenses to cover the editing and proofreading uh, expenses for the book. Um, it's a treatment journal of my 21 months in treatment successfully. It's an educational tool. It's a life-saving story that will help anyone. And I, I intend to uh, penetrate the book throughout the world in uh, treatment centers, hospitals, prisons, colleges because the epidemic is going nowhere and treatment is not about prisons treatment we need more treatment centers in america we need more treatment centers so i'm an advocate for treatment you don't send a person a drug user to prison you send a drug user to treatment and so that's one of the reasons that's the main reason why i wrote it to save somebody else's life and uh because it saved my life that's the purpose all right thank you so much okay if you're listening to this um, podcast please um the link of the gofundme page to support the work and to get people to be cured from their addiction or maybe you are even suffering from one you can click on the link in the description of this podcast to support the work and what God is using um, our brother, Mr. Kelvin, to do so he can impact the life of more people. And if you want the book, you can stay in touch. I'll send an email um, to me when the book is released. You can get it at any of the platforms. All right, so tell you, Kelvin, thank you so much for this wonderful session, for sharing your story with us. And I really, really, um, I'm really inspired. And I thank God for your journey and for the work he's using you to do in the life of a lot and a lot of people. Okay, um, we'll be ending this podcast session for other episodes. Do well to turn in next week. God bless you all for listening. Have a nice day. Loved what you've heard on this week's episode? 
Well, the answer is simple. It would mean the world to us if you could head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star review and feedback. Spreading the word really is the best way to grow our podcast and achieve even greater things. Thank you. Thank you.